Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. Hannah? Yeah? Hannah? Yeah? I need to make an erratum. Declare an erratum? I need to declare an errata? An erratum? (laughs) I need to declare an erratum because I said an incorrect thing like a year ago and it has been haunting me. I mean, it's never too late to cite your sources. So let's talk it out in the sorting chat. Thank you. What have you done, Marcel? Okay, listen. Do you remember way, 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 way back when we did an episode about class and we started by talking about Taylor Swift's album Folklore and how it brought us both so much joy? I do. I said that that album, Folklore, was produced by Justin Vernon, a.k.a. Bon Iver. Is that a lie? I know that Bon Iver contributed to a a couple of songs on both Folklore and Swift's follow-up, Evermore. Mm -hmm. But Justin Vernon, a.k.a. Bon Iver, did not, in fact, produce Folklore. Wow. I don't know who started that rumor, and I don't know why I repeated it, but I did repeat it, and it was wrong. Folklore was actually produced by Aaron Desner of The National. So... I just want to publicly apologize to all white men for my inability to tell them apart. (laughs) I'm sorry for giving one white man credit for the collaborative efforts of a different white man. (laughs) The last class that I taught at the University of Alberta, which was just one of those like once in a lifetime kinds of classes where just like the right group of students came together at the right time and we just had goddamn blast. Aaron, you vibed. who, who um, <laughs> nannied for you guys for a while, was in that class. Um, nannied? Yeah. That's a thing. Not for poor people, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Aaron, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Babysat. I, yeah Aaron, Aaron babysat. As well as I think a number of members of the, of the U of A Quidditch team were also in that class. It was a good, it was a really good class. But there were these two straight white dudes with brown hair who I could not, for the life of me, tell (laughs) apart. And we were like halfway through the semester and I knew everybody in this class so well. And I was still calling these guys by each other's names. And at one point, one of them was like, why does this keep happening? And I was like, I'm sorry, all white men look the same to me. (laughs) Were they both successful indie (laughs) singer-songwriters? I mean, maybe. I don't know. I can't remember. (laughs) Who who could know? (laughs) Who can tell? Anyway, Marcel, what have we learned from this erratum? What lesson can we take away other than all, all white men look the same? Never give producers credit. Hmm. Yep, never. <laughs> never. <laughs> well, Coach did not like that lesson. I was going to say just never attempt to, like, describe a woman's art via her relationship to a man. Okay, <laughs> Hannah. Too much? Too much, Miss Andre? Wow. That is some, that, no, that is some, that is some shade to me that is unnecessary. I will have you know that Folklore remains one of my favorite albums. I listen to it chronically. It's a great album. It's a great album. I don't listen to a single other one of Taylor Swift's albums. Similarly, 
Wolf Parades Apologies to the Queen Mary was mm. produced by Modest Mouse, whose real name I can't remember. Oh. And it is their best album. Okay, so you love you love a collab. I love a collab, and oftentimes producers are very good. And the producer plays a significant role, and you should know this as a writer who has collaborative relationships with editors, uh, that the uh, that the producer is a vital part of the creative process. Okay, so that's not. I mean, if if the producer was that vital a part, you'd think he would have gotten them right. How <laughs> dare you? This podcast is canceled. <laughs> I'm gonna cancel the treat that I had planned for devastating fun facts. <laughs> Treat canceled. Nobody gets treats, Hannah. (laughs) This podcast might be all grown up, but you never forget your first love. Granger Danger. I want to talk about Hermione. Obviously, that's what we do in this segment. But specifically, I want to talk about Hermione's fear of Harry. Okay. So I was looking back at the way Hermione is described as responding to Harry's angry outbursts. Mm -hmm. She cries. He makes her cry, I think more than once. At one point, she, like, exhaustedly asks him to stop biting her head off every time she tries yeah. to talk. hmm And then towards the end, when they're arguing about whether or not they should go to the ministry, she's described as looking positively petrified. Yes. So, like, Ron never looks scared of Harry. No. No. He, like, feels bad that Harry is upset but he is not described as being afraid of Harry in the same way that Hermione is. Mm -hmm. I am puzzling through what to make of this. My first instinct is that I want to think a little bit about the sort of gendered nature of men's aggression Mm -hmm. and the way in which anger is a socially sanctioned emotion for men, much Mm -hmm. more than it is for women. And the sort of instinctive fear that I think a lot of women have of men's anger, because that anger always has the potential of turning to violence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me and sad to think about the fact that, like, even this really, really trusted friend, when he starts yelling, Hermione feels a little afraid of him. Yeah, yeah. I'm of two minds about this. So Hermione is an only child. And we know that Ron has grown up with many older brothers. Yes. And from personal experience, being that uh, I grew up with, it was just me and my mom. And so whenever men yell, Mm. I immediately freeze up because Mm -hmm. it is very scary to me. And I just don't have any experience of men yelling in a way that isn't that isn't threatening or violent in my personal history. Whereas, like, I imagine that growing up with, like, I don't know, five older brothers, you might hear a lot of men yelling. So I totally think you're right that, like, men's anger has much greater potential to turn to violence. But also the ways in which, like, when you are not accustomed to Mm. the range of emotions that are, like, available... That when you don't, when you don't have that sort of like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to phrase this. I think that you're, you're onto something there with like the Weasleys and how like they are an emotive, loud family. And we Mm -hmm. see like Molly Weasley yells, like people yell in that house Mm -hmm. and yelling or displaying a big emotion is not like a deal breaker in their family, right? People can sort of like be over the top and be overwhelmed and have big feelings and make those big feelings known. And then Mm -hmm. 
they continue to be a family unit and everything is mostly okay. So that has maybe been modeled to Ron in a way that, like, he can vibe with it. Whereas, like, Hermione, we know, comes from what seems like a pretty middle-class, single-child, professional household. Like, her parents are dentists. Mm -hmm. And you kind of picture a version of her childhood where, like, people did not raise their voices. But I had an older brother who yelled a lot, and it made me more afraid of men yelling, not less. Because unmanaged male anger is scary for a reason. Yeah, and then if we think about Uncle Vernon, too, like, Uncle Vernon yells and threatens Harry constantly as Harry's growing up, right? And so if Harry is modeling the kind of uncontrolled masculine rage that he has come to associate with, like, feeling out of control, it makes sense then that it would be a kind of, like, violent outburst. Yeah, and is also very clearly Harry like, signaling that he needs help. hmm But, you know, Hermione is not equipped, nor is it her job, to help him. <laughs> I said I was of two minds, and the other mind that I would like to posit is that perhaps we can think about these exchanges and these descriptions of Hermione as being, like, afraid and scared. And, like, because these are, these are Harry's reflections because the stories are told from Harry's perspective that these interpretations of her emotions might be informed by his own guilt because we know what happens when they go to the ministry. We know that he will come to realize that she was in fact correct the whole time. Oh, that's really interesting. But I think these things can coexist because I think that it's entirely possible that Hermione is afraid, rightfully so, of Harry's like violent, unchecked anger. But then at the same time, we might maybe resist that interpretation of Hermione as being emotional because Mm. like you were saying earlier, like anger is an emotion that is allowed for men in a way that culturally it is not allowed for women. But fear and crying are allowed for women and often expected of women in a way that they are not allowed or expected of men. It's one of the forms of description that is most unreliable in this series is Harry's interpretation of how other people are feeling, Mm -hmm. which he often attributes to them via adverbs describing their speech, right? And, like, there's a moment that you point out in the original run of the podcast where, like, Sirius is being, like, gleeful about Harry's Harry's parents being dead. And Mm -hmm. we know there's no way Sirius is gleeful about his best friend having been murdered. But when you start to track it, you really see that he's doing a lot of that kind of interpretation, often through adverbs and adjectives. I've been really noting that this time around. We'll get to it later, but when he describes Umbridge's clothing, it's like she's wearing a horrible pink headband and her robes are (laughs) luridly floral. Like, there are these words that are dropped in that are often the sign of how Harry's interpreting things. And so interpreting Hermione as looking positively petrified. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is his interpretation. She's obviously feeling something in that moment, Mm -hmm. but that might be more a sign that he feels out of control and feels badly about how he is impacting his friends, that he is Mm -hmm. seeing her as being afraid. Incredible. So complex. Literature! Marcel, what did you notice? Okay, so the thing that I was thinking about is the fact that Hermione has the idea to start what we come to call Dumbledore's army. Mm-hmm. This is her idea. Absolutely. And it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. It is probably Hermione's best idea in the entire series. And yet, serious Black's enthusiasm for it makes, <laughs> really makes her, her doubt, it. <laughs> doubt her own great idea. And Sirius is like, yeah. And she's like, oh, actually, no. (laughs) No, no, thank you. I'm wondering, like, is this Harry's sort of skewed interpretation Mm -hmm. of Hermione just like doubting or being against everything Mm -hmm. that Sirius suggests? Or 
you know, maybe is it a situation where like Hermione's lack of confidence in herself means that she's always judging her ideas in relation to what the opinions of other people would be. So like if McGonagall or Lupin says it's good, then it's good. But if Sirius or Fred and George say it's good, then it's super suspect. Super sus. (laughs) Okay, two two things this makes me think about. One is how it is that we as readers determine the limits of Harry's narrative unreliability. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because if we push it to an extreme as McLuhan might say, then we can't know anything because it's all through his perspective. Maybe it's all a fever dream. Maybe he hit his head in the zoo in the first episode. Maybe he got bitten by that giant snake. And this whole thing is a fever dream he has as he's dying in the zoo. So, like, that's an extreme possibility. I love this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's my new fan theory. (laughs) The Jacob's Ladder meets Harry Potter fan theory. So what I tend to do with the series is believe that every event is accurate and that the interpretation of those events is subjective. So the things that he says happen are happening, but the way he interprets the things that happen is his interpretation. Okay. Right? So like Sirius says what Harry says Sirius says. But his interpretation of what Sirius says is subjective. It's just an interpretation. Okay, okay. So in this case, I would be inclined to say, and that's just like a limit that I've set Mm -hmm. because... Anything less is unruly. (laughs) Because anything less is unruly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because like at a certain point, it just becomes an untenable interpretation. (laughs) You're just like... like, Well, did Sirius say anything in that moment? Like he must have said something, but how do we know what he said? Does Sirius exist? Like... It's all just representation. So you got to you got to set some some boundaries around your interpretation at some point. Mm-hmm. And so that inclines me to say that yes, Hermione upon hearing that Sirius likes the idea does say actually no. <laughs> no. And that makes me think about this question of how Hermione relates her opinions to what she thinks authorities would think of them mm-hmm. because she is really concerned with external validation, with having an authority tell her that she is right and good. Mm-hmm. Does this resonate with you? Because it certainly resonates with me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a type, right? Like, I think that there is a type of personality that really, really wants things to be verifiable, mm-hmm. the world to have some sort of stability, there to be right answers to tricky questions. And when, partic- you know, as you get older, you start to figure out that, like, actually no external authority is going to grant you a clear path to how to live your life, that actually you have to work those questions out for yourself. And mm-hmm. that is... A hard thing to start doing when you look around and are like, who's the adult in the room? And you're like, oh no, <laughs> it's me. I am the one who knocks. Wow, Heisenberg, deep. And then around that same time, there are all of these young people who want you to tell them yes. what the path is. And you're like, fuck, man, I don't know. I truly can't. I, I was joking to some grad students of mine about like figuring out what I want to be when I grow up and they were like you you're the person we want to be when we grow up and I was like how touching and also no (laughs) (laughs) I forget to do laundry for whole weeks at a time I can't be the adult but like that's not what people you know that's not no of course of course but Yeah, that I find it so relatable to be like, Mm -hmm. I have a great idea. And then somebody you don't trust is like, that is a great idea. And you're like, never mind. It's a very bad idea. (laughs) I'm sorry I said it. I really, I take it back. Nobody do it, please. Hermione. One last Hermione thing I want to talk about. And that is 
Hermione and the house elves. Yeah. We didn't really get into the creature of it all. And maybe it's house elves are a thing we will come back to at the end of the series and like maybe look at across the entirety of the run. Because I think the arc Mm -hmm. of how we are supposed to think of house elves shifts. But in this book, we've got two really key things. One is the absolutely abysmal mistreatment of creature. Mm -hmm. Who is like a miserable, traumatized being. I really can't say that word. Oh, you did great. Thank you. It was really difficult for me. (laughs) Who is treated really badly by everyone, particularly by Sirius, and who Hermione keeps saying, like, could we maybe treat Creature a little bit better? And everybody's like, no, absolutely not. And then Creature's betrayal is pretty fundamental to Sirius's death, which is not, like, I'm not victim-blaming. Who? Wait, which victim? They're both- Sirius. <laughs> it's not like Sirius, you had it coming because you were mean to Creature. Ah, yeah. Right, 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 right. But, right. Mm-hmm. you know, she is right that had they made more of an effort to be humane with Creature, he might have, like, not betrayed Sirius in that same way. But in the same book, we have her doing that, like, deeply troubling action of knitting clothes and trying to hide them in garbage to trick house elves into picking them up and freeing themselves against their will, which is really messed up. Okay, I want to touch on that because... The thing that occurred to me this time around as I was reading it was that is that um, Hermione is not the master of the house elves. Yeah. And so... I don't think she can free them. No, no, she definitely can't. Like, you, like, no. And so it just, to me, it just added a whole other level of, like, her, like, fucked up relationship with understanding how enslavement works. Mm, mm-hmm. Because... She seems to think that she can free them and that she has an obligation to free them and that she must do so via stealth. This is not a productive, like, let, like putting aside the ethics of, like, whether or not what she's doing is acceptable, which it's not. It's also, like, totally bananas. It's not good, but it's not good. And one thing that really occurs to me is, like, is still learning her activism. And there's basically nobody in her life who she can think this stuff through with. Because no one takes it seriously. No one takes it seriously. No one takes her seriously. Nobody's listening. So she can't sit down and have a conversation with somebody about, like, how Mm -hmm. do we do this? But also, you can tell that she has her own sort of latent dehumanization of the house elves at work in how she is treating them. Because if she was actually interested in house elf solidarity, she would be talking to and working with house elves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you don't, if you want to, like, work in, you know, protect some a particular group, you don't just do what you think that group needs. You talk to them. Mm-hmm. You know, and hopefully at some point somebody will point that out to her and she'll, you know, like, like she's a child. She is still learning how to do this stuff. Like, I think there's a huge amount of complexity buried in her relationship to the house elves and Mm -hmm. the fact that she is actually right. Yeah. That, like, they should all be treating house elves better. And that is ultimately proven to be true by the narrative. Mm -hmm. But... I mean, we get so little of it because it's just the glimpses of what her Harry decides to tell us. And we know a ton is happening sort of off the page. But, like, I think it's such a good uh, representation of, like, early fumbling attempts at mm. being an ally or being an organizer. And just, like, she, like you don't, you're just collecting pennies for UNICEF. Like, you have not thought of a structure You have not, you just know somebody told you that people in Africa are poor, so you should collect money for them. And at no point have you, like, had a conversation with a person who lives in Africa or, like, thought about the way that your other actions might be contributing to the system that causes that poverty. Like, you're just like, I want to help. 
a thing is bad and I want to help and I have absolutely no tools to understand how I might help effectively. Here, here. <laughs> Poor kid. She's doing her best. I don't know about you, Hannah, but over the last couple of weeks, I have been hemorrhaging money buying fun clothes online. (laughs) It is the only thing that brings me joy and simultaneously allows me to feel some small sense of control (laughs) over the chaos that is my life in this ongoing, endless pandemic. Let's explore other underpaid instructors who similarly impulse buy sweaters after a few glasses of wine in Luke Book. A perfect intro. Okay, it's gonna surprise no one to hear that I am obsessed with the way Dolores Umbridge dresses. Mm -hmm. It just is fascinating to me. So, okay, I'm gonna start off by giving you a few descriptions. You know this is what I love to do. Just be like, Mm -hmm. all right, here's our new villain and here's how they dress. Yes. When we first see her, she's initially just described at length in terms of Harry's perception of her as being ugly. Mm, mm -hmm. And the only thing we get of her outfit in that first scene, which is during the trial, is that she has a little black velvet bow perched on top Mm -hmm. of her short curly hair that puts him in mind of a large fly that she was about to catch on a long sticky tongue. So gross. She's animal-like, she's monstrous, and she's got this like weird out of place sort of hyper feminine accessory. When she shows up at Hogwarts on the first day, she looks Harry thought. So we very explicitly we know this is Harry's interpretation. <laughs> like somebody's maiden aunt, squat with short curly mouse brown hair in which she had placed a horrible pink Alice band that matched the fluffy pink cardigan she wore over her ropes. Do you know what an Alice band is? I have always just assumed that it's a headband. Yeah, it's like an Alice in Wonderland style headband. Is it like how Americans call toques beanies? (laughs) It's nothing that perverse. (laughs) I think it's a particular style. I think it might be the kind of like velvet padded headband. Oh. But like, it's a very girlish headband. You know, I think part of what's happening here is that, like, it looks inappropriate on an adult woman. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And aligns with the fluffy pink cardigan, which over wizard robes is a hilarious mental image. Mm-hmm. Like, for the most part, when people are, are described as dressing in an esoteric fashion, it's either through a, an accessory like Fudge's lime green bowler hat or through mm-hmm. the color of their robes. Like Lockhart and Rita Skeeter have like really brightly colored robes. But the mm-hmm. fact that she's just wearing regular robes and has put a cardigan over them is bonkers. Do you think her arms are in the sleeves? Or has she done the thing where it is just buttoned, the top button, and it is over her shoulders like a cape? Oh, I prefer that. I think that would look better. Mm-hmm. I think arms in the sleeves would maybe be on... I feel like maybe the robe material would bunch up, but you could like... Just clip one over your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's got some like big, like rhinestone costume jewelry clip that like holds it shut <laughs> over the front. A brooch. A brooch. A brooch, if you will. Okay. So we see her again on the first day of her class. She's wearing the fluffy pink cardigan of the night before and the black velvet bow on top of her head. Love this. She's mixing up her accessories, right? It was the Alice band the night before. Now it's back to the bow, but keeping the cardigan. And then we encounter her again in her office, where we see that the aesthetic of her clothing extends to all of her environments. So I'm going to read you this whole description. Quote, the surfaces, this is of the Defense Against the Dark Arts office, the surfaces had all been draped in lacy covers and cloths. There were several vases full of dried flowers, each one residing on its own doily. And on one of the walls was a collection of ornamental plates, each decorated with a large technicolor kitten wearing a different bow around its neck. He had not noticed her at first because she was wearing a luridly flowered set of robes that blended only too well with the tablecloth on the desk behind her. I love this. So there's, (laughs) like, so much to unpack here, Mm -hmm. right? There's, like, the straightforward misogyny that, like, Mm -hmm. hyper-feminized 
clothing, environments, accessories are almost always vilified in this series. That when mm-hmm. we encounter any anyone who is hyper-feminized, we are immediately led to be suspicious of them. I think there are also a la Rita Skeeter transphobic undertones that mm-hmm. the way that she is dressed in a very feminine way, but that her face and manner do not match that expectation of femininity is part of how we are being told to be suspicious of her. Mm-hmm. And I also think, referring back to our episode about shape-shifting, that there's just, in general, a sort of suspicion of hypocrisy. That somebody who very clearly dresses in a way that does not match their personality is particularly suspect. Because there is this expectation that you should be the way you seem. Right. So if you are going to dress very sweetly, you should be very sweet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I do think if she was very sweet, her aesthetic would still be being mocked in this book. Oh, yeah, definitely. But it wouldn't have its sinister undertone because it's that mismatch that makes it so sinister. I think, like, Mrs. Fig is probably a good comparison, but, like, her house smells, it, it smells like cabbage or something, or it smells like boiled potatoes or something. Yeah. I don't remember what it is, but it's, like, it's not, like, oh, I love to go there. It's like a candy shop. It's, like, ooh, it's weird, and they're stale cake and photo books of cats. Cats, yeah. Like, she's she's a figure of pathos. She's, like, pathetic and dumpy, which is the other thing that a single <laughs> older woman living alone can be. She can be pathetic and dumpy, or she can be villainous and sinister. Oh. There's no there's no other models available for us. <laughs> you know, I also think it's really interesting to note how horrified Harry is by, like, the cluttered aesthetic, and how he doesn't seem upset by the clutter at the burrow. Right. Which, for me, again, is that, like, the burrow is allowed to be cluttered because... It is being overseen by a mother Mm -hmm. who is like, it's cluttered because she is busy cooking for her children and making them clothes. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is a useless clutter Mm -hmm. that is just things that Umbridge likes. And so that is bad. Yeah, it's like collectibles. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, obviously there's a personal resonance here for me as a maiden aunt who has been known to wear a age-inappropriate bow on top of my head and unironically has, I mean, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, uh. Uh, and, <laughs> and unironically has, like, some dried flowers in a vase right now. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I don't have a bunch of decorative plates with kittens on them yet. But you could. You I, could. Any second now. And it wouldn't confuse people. No, especially I lo- especially the idea that they are large Technicolor kittens. Like, what does Technicolor... Why Technicolor? Is it I like pop art? It. I just love it. <laughs> so why Technicolor gets me to the thing I really want to dig into a little bit more, which is the cultural history of the color pink. Oh, okay. Because the shade of pink is really significant for how we read it. Okay, okay. And while she wears a lot of pastels in the movie, mm-hmm. the only actual descriptions of her her pink that we get mm-hmm. in the book are lurid and technicolor. Mm. All right, all right. So trashy over the top. So let's talk a little bit about the history of pink. This comes from an interview with Valerie Steele, who edited a book called Pink, The History of a Punk Pretty Powerful Color. Cool. Haven't read the book. Can't vouch for it. But here's a little pink timeline. First became popular in the 1700s when it was the French aristocracy loved pink. Oh, that checks out. Yeah. It was a pastel pink. It was very popular in clothing and in decor. And it was more a color linked with, like, luxury and opulence than it was linked with gender. Gotcha. Yeah. Men and women wore pink equally. In fact, men might have worn pink more. It was not gendered. It was classed. It became gendered in Europe in the 1800s 
via that sort of period, what I refer to as the brummelization of fashion, that sort of period when when men began to be expected to be wearing sort of dark and somber tones, and any color became associated with femininity. Girls wore colors, men wore black. So pink started to be associated with something women wear, wore, but it also started to be associated with sex work because of the link between pink and genitalia. So, like, we got more and more pink lingerie through that period, and it became more and more common for sex workers to dress in pink to sort of indicate that they were sex workers. Um, uh, Which, I should know, is an association that returned with the pussy hats of the Women's March, but I really doubt that most of the women associated with that movement would have cited sex workers as their inspiration. Mm, yeah, there's a real lack of uh, crediting sex workers for the work, the many works that they do. And their brilliance and innovation and radical transformation of feminist thought at every stage. So the next big shift in how we think about pink comes with the Industrial Revolution and the rise of cheap mass-produced clothes and cheap mass-produced dyes. And that's when we start getting really bright pinks that can be made very, very inexpensively. So it becomes, for a while, a trashy color, particularly bright pink. It's a working-class color. It is a gaudy color. And that doesn't really change, particularly bright pink, doesn't really change until the 1950s when, like, Jackie Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe bring it back and make bright pink sort of a marker of luxury again. Similarly, it doesn't become reassociated with femininity in quite so hard and clear a way until the 1950s, which is like the post-World War II doubling down on traditional gender roles. And by doubling down, I mean, like, actually just inventing (laughs) Because the 1950s constructs itself as a period of return to traditional roles, but actually invents new traditional roles and claims that they're traditional, even though they're new. And that's like, that's where we get the idea of like, pink is for girls and blue is for boys. And then our last, our last big shift in pink is millennial pink. Mm, That dusty rose. That dusty rose, like of the huge resurgence of pink as an iconic color that is associated both with sort of the millennial generation's undermining of traditional gender roles. So that like reclaiming pink as a neutral is a way Mm -hmm. of sort of saying, you know, we're not interested in the pink-blue dichotomy. But it's also been really strongly associated with like aspirational minimalist aesthetics, which like aspirational minimalism is like a defining feature of millennial aesthetics that we all want to live in like lofts with like a single beautiful velvet, pink velvet couch. Mm-hmm. I do want that. Yeah. And a big part of that is because we are <laughs> such an unbelievably poor generation. Oh. Uh... Okay, okay. It's almost kind of returned to, like, its 18th century, like, French aristocratic tones, right? That it's genderless and associated with, like, luxury and refinement, and we like these sort of dusty pale tones of it again. So pink is cyclical. Like, it it shifts. It, It very frequently has very strong associations. Those associations have, like, reversed and flipped and changed Time and time and time again. That's so interesting. So, returning to Umbridge, Mm -hmm. I think that the textual evidence we have suggests that Umbridge wears gaudy, bright pinks. Mm -hmm. And so, part of the resonance of what's... Right? She's being associated with hyperfemininity, and that is always bad in these books. Yeah. She's dressing in a feminine fashion while failing to be adequately pretty always bad in these books, but also she's tacky. Yes. (laughs) And that is always bad in these books. Yes. Anybody who wears bright colors is suspect. Until. Until. The next book. Mm. I suddenly am reminded that Mrs. Is it Mrs. Puttyfoot or Madam Puttyfoot? Anyway, the Puttyfoot tea shop in... 
Hogsmeade, doesn't that remind Harry of Umbridge's office? Like when he's there with Cho, isn't he, don't we get some note that it like reminds him of of being back in Umbridge's office? Yeah, yeah. We know that Harry is uncomfortable in gendered spaces like that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, like I think, you know, Umbridge is an effective villain. She is Mm -hmm. genuinely a sinister figure. I don't, I'm not interested in like, attempting to girl bossify Dolores Umbridge. Like she's a she's a child abuser. She is a terrible human being. And I also think it is consistently interesting to look at how aesthetics play into the coding of the villains in this series. Right. Like just because the coding is bad doesn't mean that the character is good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean it's that I I read an article a little while ago about how significant the villain in Silence of the Lambs was. Buffalo Bill. Yes. Who was interpreted, has been interpreted by a lot of, like, transmedia critics as, like, an early representation of trans identity on screen. So it's, like, a moment that people are like, oh, I am drawn to this. I want to think about this. I think there's something interesting happening here in terms of how this character is represented, not hashtag girl boss, hashtag skin suit. Gross. <laughs> yeah, girl boss, gatekeep, gaslight, skin suit. Anyway, that was lookbook. Lookbook, speaking of suits, am I right? <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's time for a little delight, a little whimsy, (laughs) and a little simple pleasure. It's time for Orchidius. So this is the segment where we each note something we noticed for the first time in this read-through and or something that delighted us. We both want to talk about Luna. Yeah. We just didn't spend enough time talking about Luna, so we have to do it now. Yep, absolutely. And Hannah, you know that I love to take every possible opportunity to celebrate heteronormativity. It's so funny to me that (laughs) <laughs> like, you are a, a queer feminist who is so surrounded by queer feminists that it has led you to be like, well, I'm basically the most conservative person I've ever met. <laughs> I'm married to a man, so I basically am the man. I just love to to celebrate and bring attention to the otherwise underrepresented cis-het relationships in young adult fiction. Yeah, I agree. Not enough, not enough attention, not <laughs> enough time spent talking about them. It's my passion project. Who do you think Luna's het for? Luna is totally, totally het for Ron. Totally het for Ron. And I have... I wrote down a bunch of pieces of evidence. Okay, I'm ready. Prove it. Okay, I'll go through this quickly so that we can spend time doing more fun things later. Chapter 10. This is when we first meet Luna. They're in the train car. Luna observes that Padma Patil had a very bad time at the Yule Ball with Ron because he didn't dance with her. But then she concludes that she, Luna would not have had a bad time because she doesn't like dancing. Page 171. (laughs) (laughs) Evidence the second. Same chapter. Ron does a very weak impression of Goyle, like a very confusing and strange impression of Goyle. And Luna laughs so hard that she cries gasps for breath, drops the quibbler on the floor. Ron actually thinks she's making fun of him. That's how hard she's laughing. But she just found him 
So funny. Page 172. Okay. Evidence the third. Chapter 19. Luna shows up to breakfast ahead of the Quidditch match between Gryffindor and Slytherin wearing a lion hat that she Mm -hmm. presumably made for the occasion because we've never seen it before. And it roars, so we would have seen it if she had worn it to a previous Quidditch match. And she shows up specifically to wish Ronald good luck. Page 357. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Chapter 25. During the meeting with Harry, Hermione, and Rita Skeeter, Luna sings Weasley is our king to herself. Oh. And then finally, final piece of evidence in this Mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. She goes to the Department of Mysteries with them. Truly wild. I want to really, I want to think about this because like, okay, so who goes? So it's Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Of course, those three are going to go. Ginny is in love with Harry, so Mm -hmm. she's going to go. Neville has a crush on Ginny, but also is like really committed to proving himself in this book, right? He wants to avenge his parents. He wants to go. So Neville goes, why does Luna go? (laughs) She's just tagging along. We do not get any indication in this book that she's the type of person to like... Leap into a dangerous adventure? Yeah. Yeah. Right? So she's got to have a reason for going. And I think that she wants to be part of the... I don't even think she wants to be part of the team. I think she just like... Wants to spend time with Ron. <laughs> so she goes, she goes to a battle. Marcellus is so cute. <laughs> Listen, it's my passion. What can I say? <laughs> I mean, I'm convinced. Great. I'm convinced. And that makes me then want to attend to this in the next book. And be like, is this, are there any indications that this is, was it merely a sort of short-term crush and she's over it? You know, the next book is where, like, Ron and Hermione sort of heat up a little bit. So, like, are we going to see? Teen sex romperoo. Yeah, it's a teen sex romperoo. So are we going to see any reactions from Luna in that? Luna is, within the fandom, I think, often read as asexual because she's not seen in relationships with anybody but she certainly has some kind of crush on ron yeah yeah and i wouldn't say that those readings are invalidated no they're not mutually exclusive yeah no okay i also want to talk about luna okay and what i want to talk about what i really was thinking about on this read through was luna's credulity Mm -hmm. and why it's so interesting, particularly at this point in the book. So one of the defining characteristics of Luna as a character that's being introduced into this book is that she just believes in wild things. Mm -hmm. And that is treated by Harry and by the other characters in the book as silly or humorous, Mm -hmm. that she is constantly Mm -hmm. believing in things that are worthy of laughing at. And the only reason we as readers know that the things that everybody else believes in are fine and real, but the things that Luna believes in are silly, is because of the reaction we see people having to the things that she believes in. Because she'll just be like, yeah, you know, I believe in this random thing. And then everybody's like, ha ha. And then the next day they go to class and like (laughs) pet unicorns. Yeah, like, why would Nargles be any less real than Nifflers? Why are Nargles silly and Nifflers are real and normal and fine? <laughs> like we don't, we're just reading these weird, these, like, <laughs> weird, randomly made up words. Why is she, like, a crazy character for wearing radish earrings, but mm-hmm. a lime bowler hat is the Prime Minister's defining characteristic? Like, <laughs> it just... It, we, there's no baseline for absurdity in this series. So we just have to, we just have to believe. Yeah. We just have to, to take everybody else's word at it. But mm-hmm. it does invite us to ask how people know what they know mm-hmm. in this book. Because in the mm-hmm. next two books in particular, they're going to find out that a bunch of what they think they know is wrong. Totally. And a bunch of their sources of knowledge are are incorrect. 
Mm-hmm. So it got me to thinking about how, like, our main three protagonists think they know what they know. So mm-hmm. Ron is the one who comes from an old wizarding family, mm-hmm. and he knows what he knows because he's been told it by his family. Yes. Particularly like, by his brothers, by his parents. Like, he knows what he knows because somebody told him that's the case. Mm-hmm. Hermione knows what she knows because of books. That's right. And on occasion because of professors. Yes. So Ron is interested in, like, inherited familial knowledge. Hermione is interested in authoritative sources of knowledge. And for Harry, it's experience. He believes it if he sees it. Yes. Nargles are not real because he can't see Nargles. Nifflers are real because he is touching a Niffler right now. That sounds very dirty. (laughs) I am also touching a Niffler right now. Listen. What I do in my own home is my own business. That is good and right. You're not hurting anybody. (laughs) (laughs) So authoritative, familial, and experiential. So in that sense, those main three give us these multiple ways to encounter the world and also show us that no one of them is unassailable and that they're all stronger when taken together. Mm. Right? That, like, mm-hmm. Hermione learns that books are not always accurate and that it has to be corrected by experience. Mm-hmm. But they also learn that reading books can be a useful source of knowledge that they can't find otherwise. <laughs> right? Like, they, they learn yes. that these can be correctives to each other, but that no one of them should be taken as absolute gospel. Sort of like the Deathly Hallows. Yes! <laughs> So this is going to be so important when we get to the Deathly Hallows. But, like, the big example for me is the invisibility cloak. Ron has no point of reference for it because there aren't any stories in his family. But he knows it's been handed down from Harry's family. So he's like, cool, that's trustworthy. Things handed down by families are fine. Hermione has no reference point for it because it's not described in any book. So she has no way of, you know, nothing to go on. And Harry is like... I have an invisibility cloak and it's invisible. So invisibility cloaks are a thing and they're normal. (laughs) Yes. And he's got no context. Mm -hmm. You know, when later we find out that like this is actually the only invisibility cloak that exists and is in (laughs) fact this like quasi divine relic. It's like, oh, but he had no perspective, right? He doesn't, he Mm -hmm. can't tell the difference between a thing that is incredibly common in the wizarding world and something that is incredibly rare in the wizarding world because he only knows what he encounters. Like being a parcel mouth, right? Like in book two. And he's like, surely lots of wizards can talk to snakes. And both Ron and Hermione, with their different knowledge bases, are like, uh, no. They're both much better at context than he is. Mm -hmm. Because they are both sort of working with these sources of knowledge that are sort of better at, like, they're more cumulative. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. Harry is like, you know, he believes what he sees. Mm-hmm. It also means that Harry is often more skeptical. Like he's less likely to be sort of influenced by these other sources of knowledge. So here we get in this book, they introduce Luna, mm-hmm. whose source of knowledge is like imagination. Oh. Somebody's like, this thing exists. And she's like, neat. <laughs> I can imagine that's the case. Why wouldn't it? Lots of things exist. This world's wild. Yeah, you're right. Her ability or willingness to imagine things is very much a like, yeah, why not? She believes that things are true unless they are proven wrong, Mm -hmm. which is like the opposite of how like most of our like more skeptical characters operate, right? Which is they're like... Harry in particular, who comes out of the muggle world and is our focalization. So we're like... We don't imagine anything magical exists until Harry sees it and tells us about it. And then we're like, oh, that exists. So we've got the example of the um, the Thestrals that, like, from a narrative perspective, start existing in this book. Totally. Yeah. Because Harry can see them now. And when Harry sees a thing, it becomes real. But actually, they've been there the whole time. And Luna and Neville have been seeing them the whole time Mm -hmm. and just never mentioned them. But, like, that's not wild to Luna, right? That, like, her way of understanding the world has space for her seeing something that other people don't see or believing something that other people don't believe that doesn't throw her off that thing. 
She's not like, oh, you know, I think that this is real, but other people are telling me it's silly, and so I'll stop believing in it. Mm-hmm. And that is being cast a lot as, mm-hmm. as silly, but that's in part just because it's through Harry's perspective. Mm-hmm. And, like, she kind of has the opposite way of interpreting the world than Harry does. And that idea that her way of interpreting the world through, like, suspension of disbelief and credulity and willingness to imagine different things that are not obvious or inherent or received wisdom Mm -hmm. is like, I mean, one, it's a really interesting form of intelligence. Mm -hmm. She is, as Coach just pointed out in the chat, a Ravenclaw. So she is actually a hyper-intellectual person who is really interested in the question of, like, how we know what we know. And she is going to turn out to be right about the Deathly Hallows. Exciting. I just think, you know, in this particular context, introduced into this book, Luna is this, like, really interesting reminder that even in a magical world where we're, like, surrounded by magical things, actually being willing to believe in impossible things is still a powerful skill. Yeah. Oh. She can believe in truly impossible things, like the idea that Ron Weasley is crushworthy. <laughs> Grab your tissues and prepare your smelling salts because it's time for devastating fun facts. <laughs> in which I share some fun facts about Hogwarts students and staff not mentioned in the books because these things were not part of Harry's journey. (laughs) Okay, I'm excited. Okay, so I have a little treat for today's, but first we'll do the classic devastating fun facts that might be sad but are also touching and beautiful. I'm ready. My body's ready. So I keep a running list of these. We're on number 41. This is number 41 of the devastating fun facts that I have uh, whipped up about the magical world. Incredible. So fun fact, there are no balloons in the St. Mungo's gift shop, but there are self-inflating bubbles that are charmed to hover by the patient's bed. Isn't that nice? You know what? That's more sustainable, too, because we're running out of helium. Okay, so I have obviously been thinking a lot about Neville in this book and about Neville and his relationship with his parents and how we really don't get to see a lot of a lot of that. So, fun fact, we all remember, of course, that Alice Longbottom gives Neville gum wrappers when he goes to visit. But what we don't know is that she doesn't just chew the Drupal's best blowing gum. She uses the gum as a kind of plasticine to make little figurines. And she starts out just making like, you know, little trees, little animals and stuff, that kind of thing. But as Neville's love of herbology grows, she starts to model the plants that he describes to her and tells her about on his visits. And once he realizes what she's doing, he starts to bring his botany and herbology books with him on his visits so that he can give her like really rich descriptions um, for her little miniature plant models. It's really... It's really beautiful. I made both Hannahs cry. (laughs) Oh. Fun. Fun fact. (laughs) One of the ways that Frank Longbottom shows his love for his son is by composing music. But this is not always super obvious. Um, Frank will sort of tap out rhythms to score the stories that Neville tells his parents during his visits. And this becomes clear to Neville when he's telling his parents about the fight at the ministry. So at first, he just thinks that his dad is distracted. But he realizes that when he pauses in his story, his dad pauses the rhythm of the music that he's making, tapping things out. And so eventually, Neville records the music that his father has composed for him, and he plays it in the greenhouses while his students work. And, super fun fact, whenever the music plays, the students all feel reassured in the work that they're doing. (laughs) 
listen, I just, I just really wanted to give Neville some attention. Okay, fun fact. This is the last, this is the last regular fun fact. Okay. Okay, so this is the book where we see Neville's confidence, if you will, blossoming. But one of the things that we don't see is the conversation that he has with Professor Sprout right before the holidays. Mm -hmm. So not only did Neville learn to fight and defend himself during the DA meetings, he also learned that aptitude for teaching can show itself at a young age. And seeing Harry teaching showed Neville that he could be a good teacher too. And so before the holidays, Neville drops in to see Professor Sprout to ask her about the road to becoming a professor of herbology. And Pomona Sprout... Because they're doing their owls this year. Yeah. And Pomona Sprout is positively delighted to learn that this is what Neville wants to do. And will continue to take him under her wing going forward, knowing that he's... He is sort of like her apprentice. And so that's really nice. <sighs> that is really nice. Fun facts. So fun. <laughs> okay, so now this little this little treat, this little treat that I have is a little song. <laughs> this is something brand new. A little fan service to all of our listeners out there with toddlers. I would like to present you with Creature Report. Okay, so in the children's cartoon Octonauts, at the end of every episode, they have what's called a Creature Report. And this is actually erstwhile tech support Trevor Chow Fraser's idea that we do Creature Reports to check in on Creature um, now that we have introduced <gasps> Creature to the, uh, to the podcast. <laughs> oh my god, Creature Reports! So the song goes like this. Calling all Octonauts. Quasi. Peso. Chanted. Dushi. Inkling. Wait. Turn up. <coughs> Coach, activate Creature Report. Creature Report. Creature Report. Creature Report. Mrs. Black ensured he'd know his place. He lives in a grim old space. He misses his old mistress dear. And resents it when he must adhere to Sirius's harsh commands as the noble house of black demands. Fast break! Go, house elf, go, house elf, go, house elf. Creature reports! Creature reports! Creature reports! We're done with the fun facts, which please at ease until the book six wrap up. Marcel, the fact that you, within the same five-minute span, made me cry and then made me smile so hard that my jaw hurts <laughs> is like, you're too powerful. <laughs> you must be stopped. I must be stopped. That was fun. So that was Creature Report. Thank you for that. Thank you you're for welcome. that. Thank you. What a gift. What a treat. Even though I didn't deserve it because I was sassy. You're so sassy. You still deserve it. Before we close the door on 12 Grimmauld Place for now, let's point to some questions and concerns we want to keep in mind going forward. The one idea that I have feels a lot like cheating because we've we always talk about this, and we've talked about it before, and we will continue to talk about it anyway, but <laughs> I think the role of print culture and the authority of the printed word will continue to be of the utmost importance going forward. Yeah, we got to do an episode on marginalia, <laughs> like a whole episode of marginalia, because Half-Blood Prince, like that's... You know? Yeah, cuckolded for marginalia. Wow, I am cuckolded by marginalia constantly. <laughs> um, we'll keep talking about pedagogy, of course, because mm -hmm. we got to talk about Slughorn and Slytherin pedagogy, which I think this is the first time we actually get to see Slytherin pedagogy up close since Harry's on the inside mm -hmm. for a period. And we can see maybe what makes it appealing to some students. Totally. 
Absolutely. Um, we're gonna have to keep talking about trauma, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one thing that we've sort of alluded to that I think this next book probably will be the place to really talk about it is um, language and spell work Ooh. and the idea of spells as speech acts and the introduction of nonverbal spells and the idea of being able to invent spells and sort of what that tells us about like language and its relationship to magic. Mm-hmm. And also somebody pointed out, and I think this would be an interesting sort of continuation of our conversation about publics and counter publics maybe, but that is like thinking about Draco through the lens of the psychology of cult initiation or far-right extremist indoctrination. Yes. Yes. Let's do that. Those were Twitter suggestions, so I can't I can't take credit for them, but I think that they are great and threads we will pull through in our discussion of the next book. Yes. I love them. Perfect. I'm excited for a new book. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I think it's my favorite book. This one's your favorite book, and the last one's your favorite movie because you love the camping. I do love the camping. I think it's my favorite one. Yeah, I think it's my favorite too. Can't wait. We'll do 30 episodes on it. (laughs) Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryWorks.com or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease. WitchPlease is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our always-on-the-ball producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach! If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So, you've got to review us if you want to hear me down by the bay where the watermelons grow. Back to my home, I dare not go. For if I do, do, I'll have to say your usernames. (laughs) Thanks to Dreadfully Inadequate, Hopple Popple, a. Monroe, Musicals Karen, Just an Emoticon Paired with an Emoji, Betty Betty Betty, Picavaria, Carigianus, KTMMCC24, EM Cools, VFB94, Canvia, Rosen Mountain, Bethanel, Codes Like a Girl, and Rocky Road Butch. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. We got a real surge, and I think it's because maybe the episode that just dropped was the one where I was like, but actually do review us, please. (laughs) So you all did! You're all amazing. Wonderful. You know who else is amazing? Who else is amazing? Coach? (laughs) Coach is also amazing, but also... Our wonderful Patreon supporters for oh, making this show possible. they're so amazing. They're so amazing. We had an absolute blast doing our live, which please tell me. And if you want to get access to incredible bonus content, like that live event recording, two solid hours of Marcel and I <laughs> doing which please tell me live, <laughs> a costume change, Ooh. a sweater with a goose with a knife. Mm-hmm. These are the things that you can get if you head over to patreon.com slash oh please. We'll be back <laughs> next episode to start our discussion of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. But until then... Later, witches.